you know, one of the things that we've learned as part of that cultural barrier of trying to really get physicians engaged is that physician to physician communication is so important. Welcome to today's episode of Value-Based Care Insights brought to you by Lumina Health Partners. As you recall in the last episode, my colleague and I, Lucy Zielinski, spend time talking about a lot of the issues facing healthcare systems in 2020. And there were some themes that came out of that, in particular, the theme around margin enhancement and how organizations need to position themselves to maximize their revenue opportunities from their current revenue streams in their contracts, and also about reducing costs. But what we spent some time talking about was really continuing to balance organizations' revenue and operations, both within a fee-for-service environment and shifting into value-based care. To talk a little bit more about that today, I'm really pleased to have with me Dr. Alvia Siddiqui. Dr. Siddiqui is Vice President of Population Health for a large metropolitan health system here in Chicago. Dr. Siddiqui, welcome. Thank you. Dr. Siddiqui, as we were, as I, as I referenced, um, you know, organizations are really focusing on how they need to think about their business going into 2020. And many are challenged as to how they need to um, maximize, let's say, their, their revenue, but really do it in a way that they can really think about their margins. Um, most of the healthcare providers over the last year and, and even prior to that have seen their margins decrease. And one of the big drivers of that is being able to improve the overall financial performance of their employed medical groups. Many of the health systems, as, as you know, and you're living this right now, have either employed or acquired many physicians to create this large medical group within their health system. And what many of the healthcare leaders have seen is that there's still, let's say, a um, uh, limited amount of financial performance that has come out of that. Basically, the loss on a per physician basis is still quite large. So a lot of the health systems, a lot of the leaders are asking themselves, well, how do we reduce that loss? How do we improve the overall performance? And really thinking about it in a way that you're maximizing you know, your financial potential under fee-for-service, but really positioning yourself within a fee-for-value environment. So there's you know, four areas that, that I'm hearing as themes that I'd love to get your thoughts on today. And those four areas are really around the governance structures of medical groups, how physician compensation comes into play, in driving performance and really aligning those incentives? How do the care models need to change as we're thinking about bringing in these different physicians and, and truly having an efficient integrated medical group? How does the care model need to evolve to ensure we're hitting the right level of performance outcomes? And then lastly, what are some of the innovative models, say, around patient access that we're seeing that healthcare systems really do need to think about as they shift from fee-for-value to fee, or fee-for-service to fee-for-value, excuse me. 
So maybe we could start with for a few minutes, just talking a little bit about governance. And you know, maybe before we jump into it, it might be helpful just to, for you to shed a little bit of, of of your background for the audience and kind of talk a little bit about some of the things that you've been focusing on. Sure, that sounds great, Dan. So just to begin with, um, you know, I work with a large integrated delivery network. Um, we have a large employed medical group base, but we also have a large number of aligned, independently aligned physicians and practices that are participating with us as part of the um, ACO and clinical integration uh, program. And so <clears throat> as part of that, we also own uh, a number of hospitals. So truly an integrated delivery network um, and system of care. So in my role as Vice President of Population Health, I'm largely focused on oversight of our managed care tactics at that local physician hospital regional level. Um, and specifically, I help kind of guide our clinical integration design, uh, quality improvement committee, um, and then I certainly serve on a number of the ACO governance structures and help drive our overall um, tactics around innovations to um, on behalf of the ACO. So, yeah, you know, just to great. start, I, you know, I absolutely agree with you in terms of the governance structure. I think that is so key and fundamental to trying to really bring about um, really meaningful change amongst large employed medical group, um, you know, systems like ours. And so when I, when I think about the governance structure for us, that's actually one of our wins um, when we think about some of the things that we've actually done very well from a population health standpoint. Um, it's actually, you know, including physicians in that governance structure for the ACO and for the clinical integration program across the organization. We have well over 300 physicians that serve on, you know, at least about over 10 different governance uh, committees. And then, you know, in addition to that, there's a number of subgroups and work groups underneath those. And so I think that physician-led governance and physician participation in that governance structure has been really um, impactful in terms of our outcomes. So how have you seen, let's say, that governance model start to really align the physicians and maybe um, break down some of the culture barriers that are inherent to you know new physician groups as they start to come together into an integrated you know um, medical group model yeah so that's a great question so you know for us we actually have a large number of aligned independent physicians that are working side by side with our employed medical group physicians in these governance uh, committees and in the governance structure and so, you know, I think one of the cultural barriers is sort of, you know, you know what you know before you came to the organization. And so how do you think differently and think more openly about what else the possibilities could be for you as, an, um, as a physician and as part of your practice engagement um, overall to try and really drive value-based care across the organization? So, you know, specifically, if you're an independently aligned physician or practice and then now you're all of a sudden employed, um, you may, you know, feel like you have a little bit of loss of autonomy. And so I think by being part of these governance committees and structures and being able to have your voice um, be participating actively in these committees and these governance um, structures, it really helps you feel like you have some of that autonomy back. Um, and I think for employed physicians who've been long-term, you know, employed, many of them feel like they don't have a, an ability to really make changes within the organization or you know, make influences and changes in terms of the way that they're being compensated or the way that the organization is running in terms of our value-based care, you know, strategies. And so this gives them that voice as well. Yeah. And that's an important point too, because, 
you know, I, what I often see when we work with different clinically integrated networks um, and you bring the physicians together, you get a small amount of physicians who are very active in building a lot of the, you know, the capabilities within a clinically integrated network. And frankly, they make up the governance. One of the challenges is always to get the other physicians involved. And, you know, is, you know, so it's just not this small number of physicians, but you start to engage other physicians and then you groom your physician leadership over time. Have you been able to incorporate some, um, you know, let's say some incentives or different approaches in order to really provide a larger amount of engagement from different physicians? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that physicians struggle with is they're used to really being on that fee-for-service treadmill, seeing patients to be able to generate revenue in the practice. And so we take their time away to actually participate in these um, governance committees or in specific initiatives. We do need to adequately compensate them for their participation. And so typically what we do as an organization is at least compensate them at an hourly rate, um, you know, anywhere from about $150 on average per hour, um, depending on the specialty, it may be a little bit different that we can really get some specialty engagement as well as primary care physicians at the table who are willing to take time out of their practice to actually participate. Um, and, you know, to your point, I think one of the key pieces and elements of leadership is always trying to continue to groom um, your succession plan, if you will. And so we do actively have these same physicians thinking and outreaching um, to different physicians in their local um, physician hospital organization or PHO region to really try and um, continue to engage other physicians around specific initiatives. You know, one of the things that we've learned as part of that cultural barrier of trying to really get physicians engaged is that physician-to-physician communication is so important. And so to really support that peer-to-peer communication, we really do um, try to make sure that we're um, at least compensating physicians for their time and their active participation on these governance uh, committees. Yeah, because I think, you know, many of them, I think, would agree that they need to invest their time and it's sort of with the idea that it's going to create some level of a return down the road. But, you know, at the end of the day, especially if they're independent physicians, um, to compensate them on an hourly rate, at least allows them to make up some of the revenue lost if, you know, by not seeing patients. Um, so if, if we can move into a little bit more of, of compensation, physician compensation models, this, this was kind of the second issue. And as I've talked with, physician leaders, I'm sorry, uh, hospital leaders, particularly CFOs, one of the things that they are challenged with is, you know, they'll move into and develop a great value-based care contract that may place, you know, say 5% or maybe even up to 10% of, of revenues, um, you know, maybe not at risk, but aligned with some type of performance outcomes. Yet the compensation model is still driven off of the the fee-for-service type of reimbursement, where they will be compensated based on straight RVUs and with very little regard to performance. How, in your experience, how have you addressed that? What are some of the models that, that you've started to see? And in particular, how have you started to work with some of your colleagues to kind of get them to think about evolving to more of these performance-based or variable-based compensation models? Yeah, no, you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, I think one of the challenges we have in these value-based care contracts is that we're not really cascading that same incentive design back down to that physician level. And so I know with our employed medical group, you know, they do have a quality incentive that makes up part of their variable comp 
Um, but it's anywhere from 5 to 10%, if that. And so what I think we're seeing from a national um, trend standpoint is a lot more systems moving towards increasing that variable compensation so that they can actually have more incentives tied to the kinds of work that they'd like to see um, physicians and practices working on on a day-to-day -day basis that may or may not have anything to do really with that fee-for-service RVU-based uh, revenue structure. And so, for example, you know, we had, um, I had attended a population health collaborative meeting that the Health Management Academy had led a few months ago with a, a number of systems present in the, in the room, and we had um, a presentation from um, ECG consultants, a large consulting company that really focuses on, um, you know, assisting systems with this type of work. And they had done this really great presentation that showed you know, up to 30% or more variable compensation models that are being adopted by local health systems. And there were a couple of systems that were present in the room that had worked with ECG to try and develop this kind of model. And they were actually finally incentivizing things like um, active participation in the community. So, you know, community involvement, um, teaching or mentoring. Um, so, you know, this, this idea that we can actually have incentives that are tied to um, behaviors that we'd like to actually see our clinicians and physicians participating in. Um, so specifically, um, trying to promote team-based care, for example, um, leadership involvement, um, involvement in governance. Um, so that was actually something that was really exciting to see that more and more systems are thinking differently about how do we really cascade those same value-based care incentives and that design model back down to the uh, physician level and, you know, the other thing that I think we don't do a great job on is really how do we measure um, that kind of value-based, um, you know, initiatives, um, the value-based process work that's required to really lead to those outcomes. And so I think that emphasis on, you know, making sure that we have the right quality metrics that can really um, be measured um, and, and then drive that performance is also really equally important. Yeah, the metrics, being able to measure it. And I like what you said around um, the variable compensation components, because what it allows you to do is move at the right pace of that shift from fee-for-service into fee-for-value. And if you structure the variable compensation model correctly, you can start to incorporate aspects of, say, you know, HCC code capture and, you know, community outreach, citizenship type of, of things that allow you to really manage the culture shift from fee-for-service into fee-for-value. You're just not all of a sudden, you know, every year changing the compensation model, but you're allowing that, that gradual shift, which I think is really important. One of the areas that you did make mention to, you know, as you start to think about the outcomes and, and really measuring the outcomes in my mind in, in order to do that you have to be able to help the providers think about how they need to augment their workflows right and you know the the care models in a fee-for-service environment are, are are slightly different than what would be what would be required in a fee-for-value um, type of a contract or a performance-based model um, can you speak a little bit about how you know, you've worked with some of your colleagues to, um, let's say, change or, you know, uh, advance the care model to more of a, a fee-for-value type of a, an environment where you're actually incorporating measures and, you know, things around mm -hmm. care management and, and that sort of thing. Can you speak on, on that for a few minutes? 
Sure, absolutely. So, you know, just to begin with, I think one of the things that our systems need to do a better job of is making sure that we have the right uh, utilization metrics and analytics support to really uh, provide that kind of data to our practices and to our physicians. And so within our organization, we actually have at that local uh, physician hospital organization or PHO level, um, we have utilization metrics that are tra tracked and really monitored in three areas. So inpatient utilization, uh, access, which includes things like low acuity ED visits, and then uh, utilization of uh, SNFs, our skilled nursing facilities, and, and important, more importantly, sometimes it's utilization of our in-network, post-acute uh, network that really can help drive better outcomes for care coordination and, uh, for our patients. And so those metrics, we can actually not only at that regional level provide that kind of data back to our hospital and to our physician uh, leaders in that local market, but we can actually um, have that down to the physician level. And I think just sharing that data, that transparency in data makes a big difference. You know, all physicians are striving to really do well and, you know, they all want to be an A-plus um, performer, if you will. And so by even sharing that data, it's been really insightful. We've had some really great meaningful conversations about um, the kind of changes that maybe, um, you know, may help benefit the, um, the metrics, but really more importantly, the care coordination for these members. Um, the other piece I think that we do that's kind of unique is we have a ratio of individual to group performance that drives your um, CI scorecard, if you will. So your clinical integration score, your quality performance isn't only tied to you as an individual, but it's also based on group performance at that regional level. I mean, I think that also helps play into the dynamic of recognizing that physicians aren't just individual contributors, but they can really engage large teams to really provide, um, you know, high quality care. The other thing yeah. I'll just add is, you know, care management is something that I think we continue to innovate around in terms of trying to really bring our outpatient and inpatient care management teams together. But I think we need to continue to focus on what are the core population health metrics that really matter to us that a physician is really responsible for that can really help um, drive care ma management and care coordination. So that includes promotion of, you know, annual wellness visits, HCC recapture, which historically I think folks have always shied away from including that as part of the incentive model or as a, me a metric, but certainly HCC recapture and accurate coding is something that you can incentivize. So that's something that's also part of our um, sort of performance metrics for the physician. Yeah, and just having these metrics that I think are, um, you know, that, that are really more proactive as opposed to reactive or, or retrospective, I think become really important. And as you're starting to look at extracting some of this data, incorporating this into, you know, the workflow of the physicians, they start to understand how they could really impact not only their performance, but really impact the patients at the point of care. I think that becomes so important. And it really does, you know, it's sort of this alignment of this, this actionable analytics, creating the right level of incentives, but ensuring that the physicians are gonna be measured on things that they can control and that they can influence, mm -hmm. not only within their practice, but really within the team. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, and the other thing I'll say with care management redesign is that, you know, we've learned over the years that we can't have every care manager embedded within that practice, but that if we have enough risk patients or attributed patients as part of these value-based arrangements in a particular practice, providing an employed uh, medical group practice with an embedded care manager 
um, really improves care coordination for those members when compared to a telephonic or remotely um, you know, uh, supported practice uh, through a care manager that's maybe remotely uh, supporting that practice. And so I think that trying to improve um, embedded care coordination whenever possible with care managers actually in the practice as part of that care team usually leads to better um, outcomes for that practice and their performance also improves in terms of where they're being uh, measured in terms of their performance, but also in terms of how we do with our value-based uh, contract agreements. Right. And if you have the embedded care manager working alongside with the group of providers, and to your point earlier, you create some incentives for the team, not just for the individual, then all of a sudden you're starting to really align the incentives. Is that what some of the, the work you've been able to do? Yes. So it's really interesting. In the employed uh, model, it really it lends itself well to be able to incentivize that team around performance through um, these quality uh, programs. And yet for us, I think within the independently aligned practices, we've seen more innovative strategies where, let's say, you know, three to five percent of the quality payout that's going to the practice or to the physician is going back to the, let's say, office manager or nurse or medical assistant supporting the work. Um, whereas I think sometimes in the employed model, it's been a little bit more challenging actually to get that same uh, structure in place. But I think that's sort of a challenge to our employed health systems that are, you know, listening in on this podcast, for example, to really think about, you know, how can we think differently about um, incentivizing the entire care team around performance and not just the physician. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point because really the team is really what's going to drive those outcomes. And you can't place all of the responsibility and the work on the physicians. They're just way too busy. We have to be able to create a team approach and really balance the work. Um, yep, so, absolutely. So one of the, the last items I want to talk about <clears throat> is the, the new innovative um, models that are starting to emerge, in particular around patient access. One of the opportunities that we see is as we start to work with organizations around the country in building these new access models, they're really coming up with new innovative ways of connecting with the patients, um, really bringing the care to the patient um, based on their need, based on convenience, based on you know, fitting into their busy lifestyles. Um, what have you seen in terms of the different access models that are out there and how employed medical groups, you know, could really start to think about incorporating better alignment of these, of these new access models. Yeah, so that's one of the interesting things that we've been able to really drive in terms of, you know, again, looking at those utilization metrics, for example, access is its own bucket that has a number of metrics like low acuity ED visits. So if you're trying to drive and promote um, some of these patients that are being seen for ambulatory sensitive conditions in the emergency room and really engage them back in that primary care or even specialty practice setting, you really have to think differently about your approach as a practice um, and really as a region in terms of how you're going to drive performance in those specific metrics. And so some of the key initiatives I think that we've seen are amongst our employed medical group practices is this notion that we've really got to expand hours of access. So you know, whether that means increasing weekend hours, improving evening availability, um, but also things like providing virtual visits when possible. Um, and that includes both telephonic and remote visits for patients that may not need to come in, but are also having gaps in care. Um, but also, for example, doing things like telehealth visits. And I think 
telehealth visit adoption is still very low, um, even though you'll see a lot of buzz in the, in the you know, news and amongst the, the country in terms of some of the larger health systems like Kaiser Permanente doing a really great job with providing virtual access to your actual uh, clinician that where you may have a relationship with that clinician as a patient. Um, I think we're, we're seeing more and more of our physicians not really being able to test that kind of innovation. And I think there's going to be more trending um, towards testing that kind of model where it allows physicians and clinicians to be able to also um, remotely check in on their patients, either through remote monitoring devices or um, through these type of virtual telehealth visits. The other, you know, one key initiative I think that we've been driving across the employed medical group has been improving um, the utilization and really engagement of our APCs or advanced practice clinicians and advanced practice providers. So if we can actually have some of those clinicians doing some of the walking clinics, but also some of that remote support, it really offloads the clinician. Yeah, and, and what it also does is it helps to really balance the work. Um, and, you know, I really like, you know, what you had brought up before around this team-based concept. If you're able to incorporate um, APPs or, uh, you know, nurse practitioners or, you know, other providers into the team, you're able to then manage some of the patient flow around complexity of need where, you know, mm -hmm. we may, I think you really are able to provide a better opportunity for all the providers within the team to really perform, you know, kind of at the top of their license, right? So really yeah. focusing on the things that are really going to drive a lot of key value, key outcomes for the patient. Yes, absolutely. You know, and one of the things that I always um, remind our practices about is, is group, this concept of group visits. So, you know, group visits is something that we know a large number of FQHCs and rural health clinics have done a really outstanding job in terms of trying to promote these group visits and feeling more comfortable doing so based on the way that they're compensated even in the RVU-based uh, fee-for-service model. But I think one of the things we need our practices to consider doing is, you know, really thinking along the lines of how do we do group visits so that it really improves um, that time and efficiency to really reduce the burden on the physician that's leading that visit to really offload that to um, some of the APCs who may be working with the physician, but also, um, you know, bringing in a dietitian or a pharmacist or a nutritionist or the nurse um, themselves that's in the practice to really engage these patients during that group visit. And, you know, many times you can still build that four to five, you know, visits an hour, but you're doing it in a group where you can have, you know, anywhere from five to 15 patients over the course of two to three hours um, and still really have um, equal, if not more revenue um, that's tied based on that fee-for-service model, but leads to more of that value-based care outcomes that we're trying to achieve uh, by engaging physician, patients, their physicians, but also um, their caregivers or spouse or whomever it is that's supporting that patient in their uh, care in those group visits model. Yeah, and it really does, you know, help with that balance of shifting from fee-for-service to fee-for-value as you start to think about how those group visits would come into play with the team. Well, look, Dr. Siddiqui, this has been a fantastic discussion. I really appreciate your time. I think, you know, your, your insights on the evolving governance models and the importance of governance models on bringing these medical groups together, focusing on that shift from fee-for-service to fee-for-value, I think is critically important. I love the way that you brought up some of these compensation ideas uh, really around creating alignment 
and really making sure that the physicians are engaged, both you know, the employed, but also the independent physicians really come together as, as a single network that a level of alignment and, and some of the compensation ideas that you brought in, I think were fantastic. Care model redesign and care management is absolutely critical. As I've often said, you know, you can negotiate the best contract in the world, but if you don't have the ability to execute on that, if you're not able to put in place key components of care management, you know, evolve the care model, you know, your contract just isn't going to be successful. And then lastly, some of the things that you brought up around these new access models, um, in particular, you know, focusing on the needs of the patients and you know, how we need to evolve some of our practices and really the whole, the whole group mentality and the approach around delivering care, I think, are, is really key. You know, in closing, do you have any other final thoughts that you can share with the audience? Sure. You know, one thing that we didn't talk about today that I thought was important to mention was um, the concept around uh, patient-centered medical home or PCMH and looking at that model of care, you know, that's something that we've actually really um, provided in terms of support, but also um, made it a membership requirement as part of our independently aligned practices and actually supported them through this PCMH uh, journey using the NCQA standards. Um, but we've seen that more and more employed medical groups may be slow to adopt some of those PCMH, um, you know, curriculum or the even the licensing um, recognizing that they feel like they have a lot more support and they may not feel that they need to invest in the PCMH, um, you know, program. Um, but I would challenge the employed medical groups to really think through and look at those PCMH standards and really think about whether or not um, the, all of their employed medical group practices are truly um, fulfilling all of those PCMH standards. So everything from, you know, that pre-visit planning, you know, patient outreach and activation, you know, incorporating social determinants of health and behavioral health screenings. Um, I think there's a lot of value in the PCMH standards. And I think as much as we think that our employed medical group practices are running very PCMH-like, um, I think it's important to reevaluate and reassess whether or not those PCMH standards are really being adopted wholeheartedly by those employed uh, medical group practices. So that's something I would challenge our listeners to really think through as well. Yeah, I agree. That's a great point. You know, and those PCMH, you know, standards and, and methodologies become really critical to the success in value-based care, but it also then helps to gauge the, the pace of change and it starts to really create some strong culture. So I, I, I absolutely agree. That's a, that's a great point. Well, Dr. Siddiqui, thank you again for your time today. Really appreciate it. Join us next time where we'll be talking about cost management opportunities and in particular how organizations are starting to use clinical variation reduction as a means to reduce cost. We want to thank you for listening to the Value-Based Care Insights podcast by Lumina Health Partners. Lumina is your partner on the journey to value-based care. To learn more about us, visit us on luminahp.com. If you found value in today's conversation, please subscribe to us on all major podcast platforms and leave us feedback.